Well, good evening, everyone. I think most of you who are, who are here know me, but my name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Community Free Church, and I want to welcome everyone who's here and everybody who's watching online to Grace and Race, a conversation about our cultural moment. And I think with everything that is happening in the world right now, and everything that has happened in the last few months, from George Floyd's killing, to protests around racial injustice, to the riots in the streets of our cities, to all of the anxiety and fear and worry and uncertainty that the COVID crisis has caused. We, as a church leadership team, thought we needed a time as a church to stop and to slow down and to talk about what was going on in the world. And so that's what we're going to attempt to do tonight. In John 17, uh, Jesus records, or John records Jesus's prayer before he died. This is commonly called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And in this prayer, Jesus is actually praying, looking forward to the church and praying for his church. He is praying for us as we gather here tonight. And this is what he says. This is John 17 verses 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples who he prayed for in the previous verses, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, Jesus really wants his church to be unified. And he desires that so much that after he prays this prayer, he goes to the cross and lays down his life in order to purchase for himself a people across ethnic lines who would be united together in one family. And then he gives his spirit to that family to unite them together in the bond of peace, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4. So if Jesus wants his church to be unified, then why in the world are we talking about race, right? Race seems to us, might seem to you on the surface, as a topic that brings division rather than brings unity. Well, I would encourage you to think about it in these terms. Let's say that you are a counselor and a couple comes to you for marriage counseling, and their marriage is on the fritz, and it's about to blow up. And so as a good counselor, you ask questions about this to this couple. You try to figure out what the root of the problem is. And as you ask questions, you come to realize that this couple really has a problem with money, that that's where all their disagreement comes down to, that the one spouse is an absolute tightwad, and the other one has never even heard of the concept of budgeting before. Might sound like some of your marriages out there. <laughs> but in that situation, you as the counselor would come to them and you would say, listen, I think I have what I can put my finger on as the problem here. The problem in your marriage is your disagreement over money. And so let's talk about that. And at that, let's say the couple says, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. We, we don't talk about money in our marriage. Money only brings division and conflict. Now think about that for a second. Their, yeah, their, um, their lack of willingness to engage with the topic of money in their marriage is not in pursuit of unity. 
It's a mechanism for avoidance and denial. And in fact, they are, they are um, pushing to the side what might be theirs, the good things that might be theirs, if they were to push into that conflict, wade into those awkward, uncomfortable, hard conversations, they're forfeiting what good might come out on the other side. And church, I think that is what we do so often with race. And so these next two Wednesday nights, tonight and next week, we are not going to avoid this topic. We are not going to deny this topic. We're going to address this topic head on. Now, as we do that, I, can, I can't guarantee you many things, but I can guarantee you one thing, that at some point, at least one thing that is said by me or somebody else on these panels, you're going to disagree with, maybe strongly. You might even be tempted to be offended or to get angry, and that is okay. That's what happens when we wade into difficult and hard conversations. But what I can also assure you, at least as far as it depends on me and these other wonderful members of our church who are a part of this conversation, that this conversation will be conducted out of the unity that Jesus Christ has purchased for us and from that unity. So what that means is that we are going to humbly listen to one another despite our disagreements. That nobody here, whether it's your question that you text in or something that we say to one another, nobody's going to get canceled as a result of tonight. But what we're going to do is we're going to press in, and even where we vehemently disagree, we are going to respect one another, and we're going to listen, and we're going to move towards conversation around topics that are difficult. And as we move into this awkward, uncomfortable territory, I pray that we would see what might be for our church on the other side of this, that it would stir hope within us as a church. I pray that as we talk together over these next two Wednesday nights, that God's spirit would convict us of sin, that he would cause us to grieve and lament the historic racism that has taken place in our country and still does. And that he would give us a spirit-filled imagination to think about what might be the case in our lives and in our church if, God, if we were to actually embrace God's mission for us in the gospel to be agents and ambassadors of reconciliation as those who have been reconciled to God. And so our invitation tonight is would you join us in this conversation? Would you join us and talking about a difficult issue with as best as we can, humility and love. Well, as we uh, are about to get started, I just want to briefly share with you all what the kind of the format of this is going to look like so you know what to expect. So we're going to have, throughout the course of these two evenings, we're going to have four main topic uh, talks and then four panel discussions that are related to those talks. And the idea is that the, the main topics are kind of just like setting the table for us. And then as we get into panel discussion, into conversation, we pray that we're able to, to talk more on the ground level, to bring those ideas down to the ground, and to actually model what we want to do in talking to one another in love and having a conversation. And as well, as we have mentioned before leading up to this event, and as you can see on the screen, we want you to be a part of this conversation too. So if at any point throughout the evening, as if, if a speaker stirs something in you or as you're hearing questions asked on a panel, you say, oh, I want to ask 
this one thing or I have a thought that I want the panel to respond to, please text us. Your question will remain anonymous. We're going to try as best as we can to get to all of those questions that are, that are texted in. And we would love to hear from you and have you join us in this conversation as well. So before I invite David up to kick us off here tonight, let's pray that God's spirit would be with us and guide us tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in that same prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, he prayed that his church would be sanctified by the word, which is truth. Father, I pray that for us as a church over these next two weeks, that as we enter into a conversation that is hard, that you would sanctify all of us by your word, by your truth, and that you would unite us together deeper in love, And that you might show us areas in which we might not be living in step with the gospel. So that we might experience more fully what you have for us in the gospel. As we seek to live in the unity that you have bought with your precious blood, Jesus Christ. So be with us by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good evening. Good evening, right? And I think uh, even as it's a hard conversation that we're preparing to have, it is good to be together, right? It is good to come together. And we come together, and we're going to be together, and we're going to grow together, Lord willing, and ultimately that we would go together, um, and that we would Uh, grow more and more into uh, people that are ambassadors for Jesus Christ in the world. And so, yes, we're going to gather around um, a difficult topic, uh, but we're ultimately gathering around and gathering with a person and with people, real people and a real person. What a gift it is that we can gather with brothers and sisters in real time that we can see, that we can, maybe we can't hug them right now, but that we're not getting our information and we're not having this dialogue at a distance through artificial means, unless you're at home (laughs) on the live feed, but we're together. And these people that are going to be talking up front are people that we know. And that's a good thing. And, And we need to come together and recognize that in the church, we belong to each other. We are one together. We are members of one another. And that's a beautiful thing. And so the question is, is how do we approach a conversation like this? And again, the way we approach any conversation, particularly difficult conversations, is by turning to Jesus first. So that's what we're going to do. We start with God. So we look upon the world. We see all sorts of different divisions, right? We see these Uh, horrific things, all the sensational things that are put up on news. We find ourselves grieved by these things. Looks like chaos. We see people that are incredibly angry on both sides of things. What is God's posture towards the world right now? What does he think? What does he feel? What does he want for the world right now? And the way that I want to help us understand that and get an answer for that is looking at Isaiah 40. I'm going to read through this 
here to start us off. Isaiah here is prophesying to the people of God who very well could have been dealing with similar circumstances. This is what Isaiah says. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended and that her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Let me just pause there. That is the ground on which we stand tonight. God has declared to us that our warfare has ended. Despite the fact that we see war raging around us and within us, both corporately, individually, he says our warfare has ended in the sense that we have peace with the most important person in the world, God himself. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That is why we gather. We want to see the glory of the Lord. And we wait for a day when that kind of justice comes, when the mountains are brought low and the valleys are lifted up. And he's promised to do it. A voice cries, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We see the people in the world, and we see ourselves in light of the fact that we are a blade of grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. Temporary, limited, weak, dependent, And yet that limitation is not a testament to the meaningless of our lives or the meaninglessness of our brothers' or sisters' lives, but to the preciousness of every moment of our lives. This moment right now in this church, right now in our nation, in our world, is precious. It's sacred. And we should not treat it frivolously. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not, says to the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. God is God and we are not. God is God and no one else is. He reigns over all things. Nothing is outside of his gaze, outside of his power. He's not stumped by anything that's going on. And yet, verse 11 says this. And this is what I want us to to gather around here. Verse 11 says, "He He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead 
those that are with young. That is the heart of God for his people. That is the heart of God for you, for me. We who have sinned against God Almighty, who are bearing the consequences of that sin in suffering, both personally and communally, who are seeing the suffering in the world that is a result of the fallenness that we are sitting in, what is God drawing out from his heart in toward his people? He's gathering his lambs into his bosom and carrying them gently. That is the heart of God, and we see that in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 9, 36, Jesus looks upon the crowds of people filled with sinners, sufferers, people of all different walks of life, I'm sure. And we read that what he feels is not you sinners, or, or oh yeah, you're sinners and sufferers. It says he had a compassion on them for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Which we can deduce from that, that he longed to be their shepherd. But he doesn't, he doesn't even note the fact that they're sinners, despite the fact that they are. It says they were harassed and helpless. So could we even fathom Jesus looking upon the people in Portland, Oregon, out on the streets, just running in chaos. Could we see Jesus crying out, comfort, comfort, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Is that our heart for them? That's his. It's what we read in scripture. And yet we, we can understand on some level, okay, um, we get the fact that we're supposed to be compassionate to people. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're compassionate to people in their suffering. And yet, what if, what if they're harassing us? What if they're inflicting suffering on us? And this is where it gets even better. Because Jesus, on the cross, in Luke 23, cries out, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here these people, his people, are perpetrating the most heinous evil one could ever perpetrate, the slaying of the Son of God, and he doesn't even note the fact. He doesn't even call into question. He's not condemning them. He's acknowledging that they're sinning because he's calling upon for their forgiveness. And he notes the fact that they're, they're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. We don't know what we're doing so oftentimes. And that is the heart of Christ for us. And that is the heart that he is inviting us to walk with in these conversations. So as we are gathered together, that is the, the quality that we are abiding in together. Gentleness, mercy, compassion. That is the knee-jerk reaction to wrong and suffering that Jesus has. Knee-jerk reaction, boom, compassion. Not the case with us, right? It's very different knee-jerk reaction. And I want to talk about some of those things. Because in order for us to walk into a conversation like this in compassion, we need to identify the barriers to us doing that. So I have four barriers for us to identify. And just to say, when you hear these barriers, we're talking about everybody. No matter who you are, where you're from, what the color of your skin, whatever, whoever you are, these are all barriers that we face. In different ways, to different extents, in different situations, but these are them. The first one is avoidance. We really don't like 
pain. We don't like difficulty. And the reality is, difference is difficult, right? We like to be around people that are the same as us. And it's okay to acknowledge that, to be around people that are the same as us, think the same, talk the same, uh, care themselves the same, have the same interests. There's an ease that we feel, a comfort that we feel, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. To be around people that are different from us, and we feel this, even outside of this conversation, we feel this, it requires accommodation. We, we need to accommodate to the other person. We need to move from where we are to where they are. We need to, we need to um, jive with them. We need to acknowledge the fact that we might not know their experience. And that's hard for us. And yet, if we stay with those that agree with us, that are like us, we actually miss out on an opportunity of knowing more about them, knowing more about the Lord, actually, and growing deeper together as brothers and sisters. And we're not going to experience that resistance, think about resistance training in sports, that resistance that actually leads to more growth. That's what difference and difficulty bring. The next barrier is assumption. We, <clears throat> when we see somebody, immediately we make assumptions. If you don't think you make assumptions, then you probably need to think about that. <laughs> we make assumptions. It's natural for us. And some of them have to do with race. So I was, just to be very honest and vulnerable, I was uh, in Chicago at an airport, and I was in line for a rental car uh, with a few friends that I was on a, a ministry trip with. And the guy that was helping us was having a hard time. So we went over to the counter next door to him, and he asked for the manager. So he asked for the manager. I have a vision of who maybe could be the manager. The guy that walked out was not what I was expecting. It was a black man. He had tattoos up his arms. He had a gold chain, really nice watch. And I was like, wow, I was surprised by that. I had made an assumption. Now, there wasn't necessarily a quality statement there. We'll get there in a sec. But I had made a, an assumption based off of my experience growing up in white, white land, Wheaton, Illinois. I'm, I'm operating out of my experience. And so I saw that man and I was like, wow. But I wouldn't have been aware of that, of that assumption, if I had not been in a conversation about these very things. One example of why we need to be talking about this. Now, we don't like, the reason why we make these assumptions is that we, we really don't like to not know and not understand. When we see somebody, when we're talking with somebody, we don't like having to learn. We'd rather make assumptions to know, oh yeah, I get this person. Or, Yo, okay, you look like this, you talk like this, this is your life. That's not how it works. And so we assume and, and actually, we, we miss out on uh, learning from somebody and actually getting to know somebody, and we end up relating with somebody that's not actually real. And so when we come together, we don't want to assume that we know what's going on. I hate to say it, but the talking heads on the TV or, or that blog post we read over there, I will kick those to the side in a heartbeat if I can talk to a real, real person in real time. I want to learn from a real person in real time. And I want to recognize 
this is new for me. I don't really understand some of these things. And even if I was a master at this, I would still have things to learn. So the assumption that we want to walk into in this conversation is not that we really do know or that we know a whole lot, but that we don't and we need to learn. The next one is judgment. So judgment is when we take those assumptions and we make an assessment about those assumptions that they're either good or bad. And to judge, it's, it's to condemn. It's to put somebody in a box, put a name on it, and cast it aside. And all of a sudden, I don't have to deal with that person anymore. I, I don't have to deal with the difficulty of being with somebody different because I've judged them. And I made a call about whether they are worth my time or not. There was a study that was done, um, which was then cited in a book that I've read um, called Cross-Cultural Servanthood. Great book, relevant to the conversation. Dwayne Elmer is the guy's name. He cited this study where they did a study on um, how quickly Americans make a decision about people, a person, when they meet them. And uh, he noted that it takes 2.4 to 4.6 seconds for us to make a call about somebody that we first meet, whether they are worth our time, whether they are a potential friend, or even just a, a potential acquaintance. 2.4 to 4.6 seconds. You might be thinking, well, I don't do that. Well, that's the whole point. You, don't, you wouldn't even realize it if you did. And so we need to operate in the fact that we are doing this. So we need to be aware of the fact that we're doing this and attend to those things and bring them before the Lord and talk to each other about those things. The last one is self-protection. So conversations like these, like any difficult conversation, makes us afraid. I'm going to be honest, I'm afraid of conflict. I don't like it. I'm afraid that we're just going to separate. I'm going to lose a friend. We're afraid. We're, we're, we're afraid of being condemned. We're afraid of being um, guilted. Because a whole lot of people are guilting and guilting and guilting. Not the way of Jesus. We're afraid of being called names. We're afraid of being wounded. And a lot of us aren't vulnerable enough to recognize that, but that's true. We're afraid of being wounded. No matter who we are, what we look like. We're afraid of being cast out. And in Jesus Christ, as we abide in the compassion of Jesus, we can wade into deep waters knowing that he's not casting us out. And he, what he thinks of us is the most important thing in the world. So we can enter in risking the fact that we might be stepped on a little bit. So we can walk into these waters and not have to walk on eggshells because we belong to each other and we love each other. And the compassion of Jesus is the currency that we operate in, in our union together. He gives us an identity that's not our own, so we don't need to hold on to and preserve the one that we've created for ourselves. And the hard thing, too, is we're not just protecting ourselves um, from bad stuff. We're also protect, we end up protecting ourselves from good stuff because we're holding on to our view of things, our convictions, our preferences, and we're, we're actually stiff-arming the thing that might actually heal us, that might actually redeem us. And so Jesus invites us, let your guard down. This is safe. We're all right. We're good here. We're family. So we can let our self-protection down long enough 
that we might draw near to each other and encounter Jesus in a conversation like this. So what do we do? Practically speaking, here I've got a couple points to just guide us through this in light of the compassion of Jesus. Number one, be slow to speak and quick to listen and eager to learn. When we don't know, when we recognize that, we tend to not want to say anything. Or we tend to want to say anything and we need to shut our mouths. But we need to be quick to listen here. The second thing is compassion compels us to make it our primary aim, primary aim to identify what is good in the other person. What is true about what the other person is saying. Not to to cut it down immediately or to analyze it up into parts, but to hone in on what's good and cherish it, celebrate it, affirm it, appreciate it. And as we do that, and as we acknowledge that together, and we affirm each other in that way, that strengthens our bond to the point where we can actually then wade into the difficult waters of where we tend to disagree, where maybe we have things wrong a little bit, maybe where there's sin in our hearts. That's what the compassion of Jesus invites us to do. The third is, we need to resist black and white thinking. And by that I mean all or nothing thinking. That this is all this way and or all that way. Or this group of people is all that way. Or this group of people is all that way. That's assumption and judgment. This is not a black and white issue. And I know, I mean, this is the lingo that I guess appropriately coincides with the conversation. This is a gray conversation. It's complex. We're dealing with people And people are complex. People are different. So we need to acknowledge that and wade into it in a way that we're not not saying that this is an all or nothing thing. Or when somebody says something up here, we don't want to say, well, that covers everything that they think about the world. Well, no, they just said a statement. So let's talk to them about that statement. Be willing to sit in the tension of questions. This is really hard for us. There's probably going to be instances tonight if we will let ourselves go there where we scratch our heads and are like, I don't know about that. Or like, they said that thing. Um, If we're not assuming and we're not judging, then the response is, huh, I don't understand that. What a gift that would be if we just were okay with being that way. If we were okay with walking out the door with more questions than we came in. Number five, I need to sit with the posture that my sin is the most important in the room. Not the other people. We're not finger-pointing tonight. The church doesn't engage in these conversations finger-pointing, at least not in a way that's constructive. My sin is the most important. And the last thing, this might be the most important thing, is get on our knees. So if you cannot say what you're saying, think what you're thinking, do what you're doing, without being on your knees before the Lord, something's wrong. And we need to pause and stop and get on our knees. So that's, that's where we start. That's what launches us into a conversation like this. And um, ultimately, when we, when we engage in that way, that's what draws us together. Vulnerable, merciful, compassionate, honest, conversation in which we belong to each other and we're not letting go. And we're free to be honest. And we're free to be sinners 
and to misunderstand each other. The compassion of Jesus does that for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your gentle heart in this. Thank you that you're gentle with me, that you're compassionate toward me and toward each person here among us. We pray that you would radiate your compassion through your people tonight. That you would humble us and slow us down and lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Matt Matias, and I've uh, been attending here for a little bit. Sometimes I help out with worship because um, these guys are uh, crazy, and they allow me to <laughs> get up here sometimes. So um, I'll be helping moderate tonight's discussion. Got some questions here that are pre-written. But also, if you see on the screens, there's a number there that you can text that I have the cell phone to that we'll get to towards the end. Um, so there might be a point where you might want to stand up and, and, and say something or even like call out because uh, the, the, the topic we're talking about tonight is pretty sensitive. And we all acknowledge that. So in the best interests of time, make sure to send your questions to that number and we'll get to that at the very end. But let's just get right to it. Uh, we have Lukeman Carolina. <laughs> Tony, Ben, David, and uh, myself as the facilitator. We'll get right into it. Um, first question, why in the world would we even talk about such a volatile and sensitive issue as race? So whoever, just go for it. Who wants to volunteer for that one? <laughs> <laughs> just pull the Band-Aid off. <laughs> it, it's, it's important. It's just an important conversation. I mean, I think we recognize in the world today that there's tension. I, I think that if, if you're putting your hand, head in the sand, you're doing the church a disservice. Um, I, I think that um, it's good to have these open conversations. And, you know, when Ben first brought this up, I thought this is a great opportunity for people to hear about experiences that they otherwise might not hear, uh, to hear stories, to hear viewpoints that they might not get to hear, uh, to realize that um, the news is providing a certain um, narrative that just might not be out there when you actually start to communicate with people individually, uh, that Nobody up here probably thinks exactly the same way uh, as the other person. You know, Carolina and I live in the same house, and I'm sure we have different views on the issues and probably answer questions differently. Um, so I think it's just an important conversation to have. It's definitely timely, and um, I think it's just a great opportunity. Uh, I think, too, like the atmosphere that, that I see in, in our culture at large uh, it it makes people so afraid of what could happen if they say the wrong thing that most people default to, I just won't say anything. And, and we end up avoiding people who are different from us for that reason. Um, and I think there's a real danger in that. So. You can speak whenever you want. You've got the... Is this on? Yeah. I think you're off. I think you're you're off on the the mic. Wow, that was magic. 
do that. There oh, you go. Go for it, I David. was going to say, um, I mean, there's, there's also like, you know, there's a tons of reasons for it. But one reason that comes to my mind is I've heard a little bit from each of you as well as others, and I can't know you and love you. Like, to be really, I, I think it's helpful, like, in the moment. Like, I can't know any of you or love any of you in the way that the Lord's calling me to if, if we don't address it. So, and even, even you, I mean, you're a white guy. Um, that's this, it's the same thing. Because you have a story in which this conversation's been a big part of your story. And so that's how I think about it. And that compels me to love my brother and sister. Yeah, I'll just, I'll add to, I think it's important to talk about because I think in, in a lot of ways in, in America today, um, there is not an issue that more clearly displays what we believe is true about the gospel. Um, that we are reconciled with God Almighty. And I think the ways in which the gospel works itself out in the life of the church so oftentimes deals in these categories because, especially in America, race has been a difficult issue. And so for us to actually be reconciled to one another like the gospel tells us to, this is going to be a part of that. So I think it's pretty core to us living in step with the gospel, to paraphrase Paul's words to Peter in Galatians chapter 2. Anyone else want to add to that before we move on? All right. I like what you said, David. It's like something a married couple should do. You know, you don't get closer to somebody mm-hmm. until you start talking about it and, and kind of, you know, uncover the, uh, the can of worms, so to speak. Or like I said, while we were meeting the one time, I was like, it's, it's basically like combing Medusa's hair. It's just like, you got to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, it's going to be bad, but it needs, to, it needs to get done. It's just something that needs to happen uh, in order for us to draw closer together. Um, so thank you for that. Next question is, how specifically does the heart and posture of Christ change the way we, as the church, talk about race as opposed to our culture? So how do we talk about this different from our culture? I think it's in the title of the evening is grace first. I think it's Christ first, Jesus first, and then everything else. So. Yeah, I think I think we do it with uh, humility, with gentleness and respect, um, being quick to listen, slow to speak, quick to understand. And really, like uh, make seeing someone else's point of view more important than just having our point of view seen. So. I was going to say, I know I just said a lot about it, but um, um, I think. The way of the world in dealing with wounding and sin is retaliation. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And then it just keeps going back and forth. And we see that going on in our world. It's, you sin against me, all right, I'm going to sin against you. Then now I'm going to sin against you. And back and back and forth. And the, the heart of Christ stops that. Um, and he's the only one that can do that. So... You know, when I think about these issues, I, I approach it from the mindset that that I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. 
we live in a fallen, corrupted world, um, and that when I see a perceived wrong, that that is a sinner acting out. And so there, there is a, a certain sense of compassion. Um, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily excuse what happened. I mean, there, God is also a God of justice, but it changes my mindset towards the person. Uh, and it, it causes me to ask questions about, well, why did this person do this? What, what was driving that? Um, so I think just recognizing that, that we are sinners, we are not perfect. There's not one of us that is perfect. All of us have um, prejudices in our hearts, and, and all of us have uh, feelings that shouldn't be there. And, and I think that, that should create a certain level of compassion and patience and grace towards other people. Thank you. We're getting a little bit of feedback. Should, is there anything we can do about that? Okay. He's taking care of it. He's the man. Go ahead, Ben. Sorry. Oh, I, I'm just going to add, I, I've, I think it, I, it's great to quote somebody you don't know that they said this. But I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. that said um, that, the, that, that rioting is the voice of the unheard. Um, and I think very specifically in our time, and I, I loved what David said about this. It was so true. I think that Jesus looks at those people that are rioting. And he sees them as people that are hurting and broken. And like Lukeman said, there's, a, there's something about our, our sinful, broken heart that when people are not heard, that something has to happen. And we, we recognize that that response is sinful. But that does not give us the, the, the ability then to say, well, then we don't need to listen to any of your concerns or anything that you say. And I think that's the difference between the way that our culture disciples us to respond and the way that Jesus disciples us to respond and engage. I guess kind of to elaborate on this question, um, because this is a very broad question and we can answer this very broadly, but I think more specifically, uh, our culture talks about this in a very politicized way, in a very pointed way, that, that is you're either them or you're us. And uh, I guess as the church, how can we kind of like separate ourselves from that like politicized, that charged discussion, the politically charged discussion when it comes to these issues, I think? Mike Grenier, if you're watching this, <laughs> get after it on next Wednesday night. <laughs> Anybody else have anything to add? <laughs> that's what Mike's talking about next Wednesday. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah that's, that's hard because, yeah, I don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to, um, yeah, still, still is thunder. Um, I, how does the church, I, I think that we, as just as a church, so here, here's my view is that we see how the world handles these issues. We see what's, what's happened. The church needs to be, needs to be that light. And we need to operate in a, in a place of grace, in a place of mercy. Um, uh, and, and I think a, a place of trying to investigate and learn and interact with other people. Um, the world just is, is just so polarized right now. And the church really does not need to, to be that way. But unfortunately, the church is polarized. And that, and that 
So it's very hard for the church to stand out as something different than the rest of the world. So, you know, my humble opinion is that people are not running to the church for answers because the church is really no better. I mean, we're a little better. I mean, we're not burning stuff down. But, but in terms of how we are trying to reconcile these issues, are we truly, really that much better? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, it helps me to, to try and remember uh, if I feel myself getting caught up in that culture war mentality um, that, that the church isn't supposed to be us against them. Like, so that we see the lost as our enemies. Um, that's supposed to be the mission field. Um, and so I think that makes a world of difference if we see... Uh, people who are lost as lost instead of seeing them as being on the other team or part of the other army that we're supposed to defeat um, instead of sharing Christ with them. I think what I think about too is oftentimes we don't see the best in each other first. And I mean, you know, even as Christians, I've seen it other Christians attack other Christians and not think the best of them first. And I think that that's a real struggle. Like I would, that's what I would desire. And sometimes I'm guilty of that. I want to think the best of that person first. I want to genuinely believe that they have, you know, whoever's best interest at heart, that they're responding and acting in a way that is Christ-like. But if they're not, hearing them out, just like you mentioned, you know, um, those that are rioting, rioting, there's a reason something's going on. They're hurt. Uh, so are we getting deeper into that? Are we asking why, why is that person so hurt? You know, what, what are they going through or what have they gone through? Tell me your story. I think hearing people's stories are really a huge part of this. So. Um, the way that it really has to do with identity, I think. And I think you're going to talk a little bit about that tomorrow. Um, we were joking earlier in the week about how we should just let Tony talk the whole time <laughs> because he just drops wisdom bombs on us. Um, but, but in terms of, I think the first step is to recognize when we are playing the, the game that they want us to play. And by they, I mean the, they, you know, like whereas is our primary identity Christian, um, in Christ, brother, sister, um, you know, who are the players in our game, so to speak. Um, and I think to recognize when we're not, uh, sometimes we're deeply entrenched to the point where we don't even know when we are playing that game. Um, and then I think we can talk about how to, to, to start thinking Christianly about it. Yeah, I think there's lots of talking points that that are tied to identities and, and fields and camps uh, that are easy to pay, pick out and say, oh, they say that and we say this. And so I, I like that. I think um, as our identity, we should say what Christ says and we should do what Christ does. So I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, just for the sake of time, let's move to the next question. This is a two-part question. Um, so let's answer these separately. Um, first one being, and this is a big one, how do we define racism? And I'm guessing when it says we, how do we as the church define racism? Because there's many different definitions that are present in the world. But how do we do that? 
Not everyone at White's. <laughs> Come on. Um, yeah, I think I think it has to start with the way that we understand human sin. Um, I think our understanding, our, our theology of human sin, has to be a part of of, of the way that we define racism. And um, as obviously racism is sin, and so, but I, I think oftentimes there's. I don't want to jump the gun on on the question, but it's hard for me to answer it without jumping the gun. I know what the second part of the question is. Um, but, but I, so the, I think the complex nature of human sin, I think tends, tends for me anyway, personally, I don't know, I would love to hear how you guys respond, but how I would define racism has to, has to accommodate and move and shift to the, the, the way that I understand the complexity of human sin. Um, so I think the way that the Bible talks about sin is in, in different ways. I think that the Bible talks about sin, obviously, in ways of I can, I can offend or sin against another brother or sister. Um, and so you think about James's call, for instance, in James chapter 2, not to show partiality toward those who are, who are of the poor in, in church and, um, and things like that. That, that we, there's a way to define racism as a personal um, prejudice uh, against another person based upon their skin color or something like that. Um, I also think that there is another way that we understand human sin and the way that the scripture presents human sin as being more complex than any one human being. Um, basically, when sinful humans get together and make stuff, that stuff is going to bear the marks of human sin. Um, so I think that's what the Tower of Babel points us to, right? And in Genesis 11, the, the nations come together and they say, we're going to make a name for ourselves." And so God scatters them. Um, and I think that's what that's about. I think if you look then how that theology is developed throughout the Bible, you have the great city of Babylon um, in, in Revelation and the prophets uh, that is this kind of bigger than any one person nation that perpetuates sin against other people groups. Which would also lend me to, to define sin in ways that are broader and more, um, to use the cultural buzzword, systemic in nature. That, that sin's bigger than any one person because when humans get together, we ingrain our sin onto the structures of our society. So I don't think it's an easy, simple answer. That's what I would, that's what I would say. Yeah, I guess, I guess we can tie those two things together. Because the second part would be, is it an individual, person-to-person reality, racism, or is it corporate, a, a, a systemic reality? Um, so how, how do we define racism? Is it systemic or is it individual? So I, I, one of the things I would, I would caution is that when we answer, we're answering from our our personal experiences, our philosophies, and so, um, so you might hear different things that you don't agree with, you agree with, but so, is it personal? Is it corporate? I, I mean, I think there there there's components of both that can exist. Uh, I think it's certainly a somebody has to uh, has to be racist. And I think sort of the first question, answering the first question is that that is such a hard question to answer because there are so many different definitions that are floating out there um, just based on experiences, based on 
you know, postmodernism, you know, it just, there's just so many different viewpoints that it's hard to really pinpoint what is racism when you're talking to another human being, well, what's their definition versus what's my definition? Are we talking about the same thing here? And so we're not, so if, if you feel like your two ships are just sort of passing each other, it's probably because you're using two different definitions, but you're saying the same word. So, so that becomes very difficult to, to answer. Um, and, and I'm going to bunny trail a little bit because I have the mic. But, but it's a very personal experience. And so what one person might say, well, I've, you know, often it's I felt like somebody was racist towards me. That, that's usually, there's, there's a feeling behind it. And it's very hard to define that feeling. It's very hard to say. You know, you can't really quantify it. It's not tangible necessarily. I mean, it could be tangible in the effect, but there's, there's usually a feeling behind it. Um, so the corporate piece of it, so my, my personal stance is that that component can be there. It, it does exist. Um, you know, I think, you know, the word that gets tossed around a lot is systemic. Um, I don't know if I personally think that there is systemic in the way that it's defined nowadays, and that is that the whole system is set up that way. You know, I, I believe that there is, or there was, systemic racism with, even within my time. Uh, I mean, I'm only 42, and you know, seen things. I grew up in New York City, and so I mean, I saw things uh, where I would say there was definitely systemic issues going on. It wasn't just one outlier of a person doing something in a community. Um, you, you do see stuff like that. I don't know how much it exists today. I don't know the prevalence of it today. Um, and I know that there are people who would argue that, that it does exist. And I'm certainly open to that idea that it does exist. Um, now, just to, just to sort of qualify what I'm saying, I believe that that there is impact that people experience based on policies. So I do believe that, that the intent might not have been racist, but the impact of it seems that way. Um, or the, or the, there's disparate outcomes within it, or there's, there's disparate treatment within it. But was the system designed that way purposely? I don't know. I would just say quickly, I, I think at the heart of racism oftentimes is at its most grievous, it's a form of idolatry where we're the idol. My, I'm, I'm my own idol and I've replaced God as the standard. And then I measure everyone against how much they are like me in their skin color, in their interest uh, everything. I, I become the standard. And I think that can be personal. And I think it can, it can become corporate as well as any idolatry we see in the Bible. Um, you know, it's often practiced corporately. Um, so. Yeah, I was going to say that I guess systemic, you said corporate, and I think personal and corporate sin are inextricably linked in my opinion. I think when people say systemic, I think they're talking predominantly about policy. Um, but in, in terms of corporate and communal sin, I think absolutely. To, to what extent? I don't know. Um, 
In what ways? I don't know, but I, I just know that, I mean, you take lust, uh, pornography, that is a personal sin and very much a corporate sin in our like, national community, world community. And yet it's also systemic in the sense that there are people profiting off of it in the same way that, I think it's in Ephesus, the idol makers were profiting off of the creation of idols. And so when Christ came in and people weren't buying idols anymore, people were angry about it because there was this system that was, you know, playing into the idolatry. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think it is corporate. It's just a matter of to what extent and what that looks like and, and then obviously what we do about it. So let's just take uh, five minutes and I'm getting some questions here that are kind of maybe approaching more of what we're talking about right now. Um, so let's just mentally prepare to answer those more directly towards the end. But um, let's just take five minutes to answer this next question because we honestly can't answer any of these in five minutes. <laughs> so let's just take do our best here. How do white people engage in conversations about race when it feels like they can't say anything for fear of being labeled a racist? I'm afraid to speak because I think you'll (laughs) label me a racist. (laughs) (laughs) I think... This is a heavy question, right? It's a hard one uh, for sure. But I think it's really important to be a good listener. Um, I think that's honestly the most important thing. So if you're asking a question, listening to the response genuinely rather than when you're asking the question, thinking about your next question. Genuinely wanting to participate in a conversation, in an open, engaged conversation, and maybe hearing things that you either are shocked, saddened by, all those emotions you might feel. I mean, I, I've, I've shared things with people when they've asked, and they're shocked by it. And I think, I think it's really important that you're listening, you know, just genuinely listening. To add to that, I would say these conversations follow relationship. So here's sort of the hard truth. If there's no relationship there, you really don't have a, uh, you don't have any capital in that, in there to ask those questions. Um, You know, if, if there's no trust there, if somebody asks me a question, I'm going to wonder why are you asking me that? And I'm not going to give you an answer. I'm going to feel like do you actually want to know, or are you just appeasing yourself? So how do you ask the question without seeming like a, a racist or, or offending somebody is that the, the relationship needs to be there before that question is ever asked. The, and so that the, the person who you're asking knows your heart and where you're coming from and why you're asking that, that question. Um, and, and again, be ready, as Carolina said, be ready for the answer. The answer might not be uh, pleasant to hear. Um, so just sort of anecdotally, I, I asked the person who is Bhutanese, I said, and I said, Hey, I, I'm having these, some trouble here where there, there's some rubs here that, you know, there's some cultural clash. And I said, what, what's going on? Explain to me. And he was very honest. He was honest about sort of his culture. He was honest about sort of American culture. He was honest about 
black culture and and sort of the perceptions. And it, it was a very honest conversation, but that conversation couldn't happen without there being a trust that was already there that I'm asking someone to know. You're, answer, you're going to answer me honestly because you believe I want to know. So I, I would say the primary thing is that there needs to be a relationship there first um, before you really ask that question. Otherwise, you know, you really... I don't want to say you don't have the right, but the, the capital is not there to ask the question. Maybe one more. Anyone else? Anything else you want to add to that? I know I'm like staring at you, Tony, but <laughs> don't feel like I'm pressuring. <laughs> Anyone, Tony? No. Um, I'll, I'll speak personally. Um, yeah, it's, it, I feel when I speak to uh, my, my Caucasian friends, my wife is white. So, so there's times that I have conversations with her that she just doesn't understand some of the experiences I've gone through even just growing up. Um, and I've had to explain to her, like, this is what I've gone through. Um, and she, there's been times where we've gotten into conversations. She's like, well, you know, well, I've been through something like that, too. And I have to kind of explain, like, well, it maybe it's a little different than what you've experienced. Um, and I've and maybe in other conversations I've seen where if I were to say, well, and I'll give a, a real life example. Just the other day, I was walking my son in his carriage in a stroller um, just for a walk. Uh, and I took like a um, like a back street to get to my house to get back because uh, the sun was going down. And I hear something behind me, and there is a fire, uh, I guess not fire truck, but like uh, an emergency vehicle with lights and everything that's walking very that's driving very closely behind me. And I'm just I just peer behind over my shoulder. I'm like, okay, that's strange. And they follow me the whole way up. Uh, for, for no reason. And it, it made me feel very uncomfortable. Um, but at the same time, I would be remiss if I said I hadn't experienced that multiple times in my life before, that feeling. Um, so there's feelings, I think, that you can say, uh, you can acknowledge from someone without having to share your own experiences and feelings. Like, oh yeah, I, I, I grew up here and I, I was the only person here and, and giving your own examples. Uh, like Carolina said, maybe the best thing we can do or, or people um, you know, of, of different ethnicities should do is maybe listen, just listen. I think that's the best thing and the best way to maybe answer this question. That's my own personal opinion. Um, but I think let's move on uh, um, to our next segment. Um, let's just pray real quick. We've covered a lot of ground, and let's just say a quick prayer, and then we'll, we'll move on to our next segment here. Uh, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that we are able to gather together in your name and, and speak about tough uh, situations and tough issues um, and listen to one another uh, with sincerity. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to um, quell our own emotions and our own opinions so that we would be good listeners, that we would be slow to speak and very quick to listen. And God, I pray as we continue tonight that um, you would continue to season our conversation, that it would be honoring to you. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen. Um, could we take questions if you want to just text that number, and then we'll take that at the very end. No, I don't know if we're taking any live questions. Sure, go. Um, so let's take, let's take a five-minute break, use the restroom. Um, and then if it's okay with everybody, we're already tracking a little late, which I don't think is a huge problem, but just feel, if we go past nine o'clock and you've got to go, you got babysitters, whatever, 
just, just go. And we won't, we won't think you're mad or anything like that. Just go. But if you guys are okay, we'll press on and, and try to answer some of your questions in the next segment. So let's take five minutes and then come back, and the Harveys are going to speak to us. Okay, we're going to get started uh, back up again. So, we, Carolina and I were asked to um, talk and um, just talk about our experiences. And you know, I thought to myself, like, what, you know, what's the point of me talking about my life and some of the experiences that I've had and some of the experiences that she's had? And um, you know, I wrestled over this. What do I say? What do I not say? What do I, you know, how, how deep do I get? And um, so I, I think for me, the, the point of our conversation is, is just to create a, a heart that, that cares. I mean, really, it's just to care. You know, it's, it's not to necessarily produce any type of um, guilt or sympathy, or, but just to just create an environment where we, we all recognize that there are people who live different lives than, than us. I, mean, I I know that personally, even my life was much better than the lives of a lot of people that were around me as I was growing up. And I had both my parents uh, in the same house. They were married 47 years. Um, I my mother was a school teacher. My dad worked for the Bronx District Attorney. So you know, we we did not have a, a bad life, but we we had experiences. So I'm just going to kick it off. You know, it started. Back in 1978, that was the year I was born, and um, I grew up. <laughs> to sit down. So, <laughs> I grew up in um, I grew up in the projects of Harlem, uh, in New York City. If you don't know where Harlem is at, and um, I was fortunate enough to grow up when crack came into Harlem, um, and so. Uh, it, it was a um, it was a difficult time. Just saw a lot of bad things uh, in, in the neighborhood, and so um, I'm just going to sort of walk through that so those younger years of my life. And um, I'll probably bunny trail a lot, jump around, but uh, you know, my early years watching crack come into um, into Harlem. You know, for whatever the reasons are, there's lots of reasons out there as to how it got there, and but it was there, and uh, the, there was some difficulty in watching the, that situation. And the reason why it was difficult was because we had drug dealers that were selling crack, and we had police officers. And and I'm just going to speak honestly in that the drug dealers had more integrity than the police officers. And so we watched drug dealers who, even though they were destroying the neighborhood, they needed a certain level of peace in the neighborhood so that they could make money. So they were driven by profit. And they did not want gangs coming in. They didn't want shootings. They didn't want that stuff coming in because then it brought attention onto the neighborhood. And so you, so you, know, these, you watch these crazy movies where the drug dealers bring you know, turkeys for Thanksgiving and they pull up with a, you know, a semi with gifts for the kids. And that's what it was like. And so they, they became these, these somewhat superheroes because they, they were the law. But then you had the government-sanctioned law, 
which would arrest the drug dealers. But they didn't just arrest the drug dealers and take the drug dealers away. They arrested the drug dealers, shook them down, took their crack, took their money, and then that crack went back into circulation to be sold back into the community. And so growing up, I'm, I'm watching, okay, I got the bad guys, and then I got the bad guys. But the difference is that the bad guys are supposed to be the good guys. And so I think that when you see some of the outrage that you're seeing today is that the good guys are supposed to be the good guys, and they're not being the good guys. Now, is it every situation? No. Was every cop in Harlem corrupt? No, but there was enough. And there were precincts. And so when I, when I talk about systemic issues, it's, that's a systemic issue because everybody knew what was going on. So fast-forwarding a little bit, now I'm a little bit older, and uh, I think my wife is excited for me to sort of tell some of these stories. You know, in third grade, um, I had a third grade teacher, and her name was uh, Miss Weiswasser. And I was the only black kid in the class. I went to a predominantly white Jewish elementary school. There was about five black kids, me being one of them, that we got bussed in from various neighborhoods. And so now we are you know, the minority, but now we are really the minority. And um, she didn't particularly like me. Um, I can't say if it was she, her being racist. She never explicitly said anything to me. But I became class president. And what I witnessed was the vice president got all the responsibilities. He was white because I was the only black kid in the class. He got all the responsibilities, all the benefits, and I got nothing. And there was, I remember almost this disdain for the fact that I won, that I had campaigned and I got all these white Jewish kids to vote for me. And, and I remember the treatment that I had received during that time. Now we're going to fast forward to fifth grade. So this is all in elementary school. Um, my fifth grade teacher, still remember her name. Uh, I'm sure she has passed away because she was 60 at the time that I had her. First day of fifth grade, it's fifth grade, yeah, fifth grade, sorry. First day of fifth grade, um, all the kids go out to recess and she stops me. I haven't done anything yet. I, I have not done anything in her class yet. And she pulls me aside and she tells me that if I act up, she's going to send me back to where I came from. So as a fifth grader, I don't know exactly what that means. But as you get older, you start to understand what is being said to you. Uh, my parents were constantly brought into uh, class because of my behavior. I did not have any behavioral issues. I was a very disciplined child. I mean, I acted up like any other child would, but I was, I was very respectful. Um, and in, towards the end of fifth grade, I was accused of cheating on one of the citywide tests and that I was taking answers from the other kids. And again, I was the only black kid in my class at the, at the time. Actually, I think one other kid was black. And I was accused of cheating, whole big issue. Parents got dragged in. I was cheating. I actually ran out of the building because nobody was listening to me. Well, the test scores came back in, and I had the highest grade in the whole class. And so the pushback was, was how did he cheat off of other kids if he beat out all the other kids? Never an apology, never anything. It was just we were moving on past it. So those are some of the experiences of those earlier years. And, um, and then... 
I'll give it over to Carolina and we'll start talking about the, some of the later years. So um, I, it's really interesting. I was, um, when I grew up, when I was raised, I actually only spoke Spanish um, until I went to school. So my first language is actually Spanish and I learned English when I went into kindergarten. So I'm a first-generation American. Uh, my mom came here from Colombia when she was 22, I believe, and uh, she was not married. She didn't have a dime to her name. My grandmother was already here, um, so she moved right in with her uh, and obviously then had me shortly after. Uh, so my mother... Uh, went through so much. Oh, good gravy. I was hoping I wouldn't cry. Um, went through so much to raise me and my brother, but I think about some of the struggles that my mom experienced that I actually, um, saw as a child and would never want any, anyone's child to experience those things. But, um, I remember as a kid, it was normal for me though. And so when they tell the story later, in life, people are shocked. Um, but I slept in my winter coat and hat. Um, you know, we didn't have heat. She didn't have the money to pay for heat. And she did her best to send us to school. Well, it was it was a really hard time for her. So she, um, she sent us to Mount Hershey School. So most of you in here probably know um, what that is. That's really close to us, just 10 miles away from here. But I went to Milton Hershey School, and uh, Milton Hershey School was a really great um, uh, opportunity for me. It didn't work out for my brother. He ended up getting himself um, nearly kicked out in, like, eighth grade and then ended up um, just having a really rough time with um, life when he moved back to New York. So I'm also from New York, um, city and you know some of the things that we saw growing up you know it's you don't you don't realize that's that's your normal so when you hear some people grow up differently you think oh wow so that that is odd like what I went through wasn't what a child shouldn't should have to deal with and I remember even Lukeman talking about you know a shootout at a playground when he was in elementary school. And those those things were very common um, where we were from to hear that. Um, you know, before I even went to Mountain Hershey, our house was completely robbed. Um, before I went to Mountain Hershey, my house had completely burned down. So we were actually in the Red Cross right before we went to Mountain Hershey. So there was a lot of a lot of hardships, a lot of um, struggles to get there. But I would say, like, in Mountain Hershey... I was thinking about my young life there. So I went in in seven, at seven years old. I was in second grade. And when I went into Mountain Hershey, you know, I, I had no expectation of what it would be like. I didn't know. I just hoped I didn't have to, you know, live at the Red Cross. That's where I was last at, right? So it was a really um, warm and loving environment. Um, you know, the people that cared for me in my first home, I'm actually still very close to. They're like grandparents to my children, and they're like um, spiritual parents to Lukeman and I. But you know, they never, um, they never treated any child differently. Um, and I know that people often say, you know, um, I want to be colorblind. Well, I don't think 
it's good to be colorblind. I think it's good to see color. I think it's good to see difference. I think it's a beautiful thing to see all that, uh, the differences in all of us. Um, but I love that they cared for all of us exactly the same. You all, if you did, you made a poor choice, you got the consequences for it, right? So I love that about them because they weren't colorblind, they, but they treated us all the same. They treated us all very lovingly, um, you know, and that was such a great example of what a couple should do. My mother and father um, were divorced, but after I actually went to Mount Hershey. So uh, Lukeman came from, you know, parents that were together, you know, until his father passed away last year. But I came from a very broken family. Uh, so um, that obviously that has a lot to do with, you know, what I dealt with as, as a young lady. Uh, but then getting into the, you know, older elementary, um, middle school years, um, that is just hard no matter where you are, no matter what skin color you are, (laughs) no matter where you go to school, middle school is just really rough. And again, I really felt like I was really thankful for Milton Hershey because of the way they all treated us. And there, there may have been things that went on that I didn't even pay attention to. I don't even remember them. Um, but I'm so grateful by, by the experience that they gave. The kids that go to Milton Hershey are of all races, all financial background. Well, I shouldn't say that all financial. They, they're all, everyone is, um, needy. So all the kids come from difficult backgrounds, but, uh, you know, they're, they're all different colors, all different places. You know, I, I've recently, um, got, got reconnected with a gal from Mount Hershey who's native American and her story is completely different than mine. Um, and it was great to get to know her now as a young woman, but then even, I mean, as a grown up, but then getting to hear her stories of when she was a young woman. So I think, um, you know, I was really grateful. I think Milton Hershey was a saving grace uh, for me and my brother and for his younger years anyway. So I, um, so I had the pleasure of growing up in New York City during the nineties um, during stop and frisk. And um, I also lived in um, I didn't live in a, in, in a bad neighborhood when I was in high school um, because I was with my parents and they could afford to live in a nicer neighborhood. Uh, but when I left my parents, um, I did live in a bad neighborhood because that's what I could afford. So I lived in a um, a high crime area, a um, lot of murders in, in that area. Um, and stop and frisk um, started. Now, I know that there are a lot of people who disagree with it, and I, I'm not here to advocate for it or or, or disagree with it. But um, the city was a mess, and crime was was crazy uh, during the late '80s and going into the '90s. And so something had to to be done, and uh, so that was the approach that was going was taken. And so, you know, as, as this you know, 16-year-old through sort of 20-year-old, I'm sort of in that prime demographic of black male uh, living in crime-ridden area um, and coming of age and how do I process all this information I'm seeing. You know, fortunately, again, I, you know, I had a dad that worked for the Bronx District Attorney. I had an aunt that was a corrections officer. Um, there were family members of mine who, who were in and out of prison. And, and so it, there, there was a familiarity with with the consequences of decisions and then 
this sort of how law enforcement sees certain things. But there was a reality of, you know, just because of where I lived, in, I'm not going to say every day, but it was a lot that I would be coming home. I worked until usually 8 o'clock, 8.30 at night. So by the time I got home, it was probably around 10 o'clock at night. And the police officers, I mean, there would just be three or four unmarked cars, and they would just pull up, lights on, flashing, everybody up against the wall. And you're just walking down, down the street. Now, because of, of my parents and my aunt and just knowing what to do, I never stopped. I just kept walking. Because I assumed that if I looked like I had some place to go, they would assume I did. And I always did. I was going home. You know, I, I wasn't wandering the neighborhood. But it, w- it would happen constantly and constantly. And you would hear, well, this person got arrested. They found this on this person. And... You would, you would watch these things continue to happen. But here, here's the crazy thing that, that, that again, the, the drug dealers that were on my street were so polite. And once they knew that you were not buying from them and you were not a threat to their business, they would actually say good morning to you. They'd say good night. They'd ask you how your day was going because you were part of the neighborhood. And, it, and there, there was, you weren't a threat to them. So now we have these drug dealers who are very polite and nice to you, who seem to be protecting the neighborhood, and then you have these police officers who are, now they're following their orders, but their orders is to basically put everybody up against the wall and check you, and if you have stuff, you're taking a ride. And people would take a ride. And uh, there was one experience which, uh, which we lived on the street, and we're driving home one night, and... I just, I, I see them. You get to a point where you can start spotting things happening. And I'm like, oh, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if it's for us. I don't know if it's for somebody else. Because all of a sudden, you just start seeing unmarked cars literally look like they're just, just growing out of the ground. And there were probably at least 15 unmarked cars. They were coming from, from two different directions, coming down our street. And they're kicking in doors. Now, granted, the doors they were kicking in were drug houses and, and trap houses and stuff like that. Um, so they had a reason to be there. But that's the environment that, that you're being exposed to. And, and so you know, at this young age of, of being really those, those years where you're starting to develop your ideas of what the world is like, this is what you're, you're seeing. So I... I I think, like, just for the sake of time, I just want to wrap up at least my story in that uh, I think that sometimes what people don't realize that if you're not if you don't live in those type of areas, if you're not experiencing those type of experiences, that there's a like a communal pain that that takes place. So that you know, I might not have been stopped. Now, I did have run in with police uh, at various points in my life. Some were positive, some were negative, and there there were. Yeah, I remember a time in um, Massachusetts. I was doing 80 in a 55 zone. I passed the police car, knew what I was doing, pulled over right away. A police officer came up to me, said, I appreciate you pulling over so fast, and wrote me a warning. I was gone. I was out of there. Same town, driving through at night, minding my own business, and I'm being followed. I'm the only car on the road. This cop car is making every turn that I'm making on. The problem was I was driving in a predominantly white neighborhood, well, it was all white, actually, this particular town. I don't think there was anybody else. Uh, it was known to be a very racist town. It was known that you were not to really go through that, that town. Um, you get through the town, 
You, try, you take the main roads, you don't cut through any of the side streets, and you keep moving. Well, I had to cut through side streets to get up to another road to get to where I had to go, and I'm being followed. Now, I know how to drive, kept my speed limit, used my turn signals, and eventually they got to the edge of their township. They couldn't go any further, and I took off driving. So, you know, as Matt said, you know, there's this sense of being uncomfortable. What is this interaction going to be like? What is this person going to do? How do I handle it? What if they decide to go crazy? How do I defend myself? You know, how far do I let them go? You know, there's, you know, there's this point in where you have to make decisions and say, how, where, where is this no longer a negotiation? Like, it's me versus them versus how do, when do I fight this in court? Like, what do I allow to happen? So... I, I think that getting that message across that there's this communal pain that takes place of it might not have been me, but I, I would say that if you ask 10 black or Latino people, eight of them will either had a, uh, an experience or know somebody directly who did. Mm-hmm. And so there's this common mistrust that, that, that is created even if the individual did not experience it them, themselves. And that's very hard to overcome uh, when this, when that's all that you've seen all your life, and especially if you live in a neighborhood where you, or in a place where you never actually get to know a police officer, so you know I'm fortunate that I know police officers, and so I know well they're not all bad people. Um, there are some police officers I know where I'm like I don't think you should be, I don't, but I don't give the psych evaluation, so I, I don't I don't get a say in that uh, a, a seat at that table, but. You, if you don't know a person personally, it's very hard to have a good impression, have a good um, idea of that maybe this wasn't a racist act. Maybe you actually did something. Like maybe you made a turn without a turn signal, and you're driving through a you know high crime street. Maybe you know you left a trap house and now you're being followed. Maybe the police officer recognized your face through, the, through your car window, knows that you tend to be a felon and just waiting for you to do something because they know that you have a particular pattern. And, and so there, there's these two sides to the coin of trying to understand. Um, but at the end of the day, I think what we're seeing is that communal pain uh, of things that have happened in the past so you know, if, if my grandfather was still alive and he told you the stories of being in the Navy in World War II, you know, that can shock a person. You know, it's his grandson. I'm like, why would you do that to my grandfather? And then to hear my dad that's growing up through the civil rights era and like, why would you do that to my father? My father's a good guy. You know, you know and we're all sinners, but you know, a good guy. And so that pain just seems to get carried forward generationally. So the, the difficult part is he's like, my kids don't experience the things that I experienced because I try to protect them from those things. But I have to warn them of them. I have to warn my sons, this is what you need to do. And so I don't know how many of you guys sit there and talk to your sons and say, well, if you get pulled over, you got to turn the dome light on, put your hands on the steering wheel, don't reach for anything because you don't want to give the cop a reason. But that's a good thing to do in general because... What's the most dangerous thing a police officer can do is a traffic stop. And so, but how many people have that conversation with their children, not just for the safety of the police officer and for his comfort, but for the safety of your own child? And so you don't want to give a reason because you don't know what this police officer is thinking. 
so those are things that, that I have to deal with. I have to teach my children uh, those things. I have to teach my children about the world that, you know, you got to be careful where you go. You got to be careful who you're with. So if you're out with a couple of white friends and something happens, you might be more, you might have to deal with more stuff than they will. Or you might not be seen as favorable as they do. So we, we have a friend who, um, uh, they're, they're black, and their son is, at the time, I think he was 13, but he looked like 17. So if you, if you have a police officer who, is, who thinks that the child is 17, or you have a neighbor who thinks the child is 17, but really the child is 13. Now, there's a big maturity gap in there. And so you know, teaching our, our children that you have to think about how you're perceived, how you look, uh, how you are compared to other people. And so you do have to behave differently. And, and so that, that is tough, but it's also reality. It's just also the, the reality that we deal with. I just want to give um, just two two examples of things that went on, um, you know, in in my life that uh, I think are important to hear. I guess maybe I don't know. Maybe they will be. <laughs> uh, but I I remember in college um, going into stores with friends. And I mean, I had friends from every race, you know, I, you know, I really enjoy people's stories. I enjoy hearing where people come from and, uh, what experience life experiences they have. Um, biographies are like my favorite things to read. I just love hearing, um, where people are coming from. And so, you know, I remember as a college student going into a store and, or going into, um, a restaurant and being with white friends versus being with friends that are, you know, of my skin cut, like Latino or black and being treated completely differently. Um, even as a grown up, um, being treated even in this area completely differently when I'm with one, uh, race of people versus another, uh, when I'm with, um, you know, a friend at a lunch who's white versus with a friend, um, at dinner who's, you know, Dominican or of another race, um, they just treat me differently. And it makes me sad to see that, uh, you know, I, my goal, honestly, when I see that, of course I'm angry (laughs) when I'm angry, when, you know, I feel mistreated or, um, you know, someone acts a certain way or treats me a certain way. But I think I go back to thinking to myself, what have they gone through? Like, what are they dealing with right now? What are they struggling with? Um, you know, as a person, did they just lose a family member? Did, you know, so trying to be understanding in that way, um, of where they're coming from, but it's, it feels it's, it's the same place. I'll go to the same place and be treated completely differently with different people. And it just, it makes my heart sad, you know, to see that. And I think to kind of talk about Lukeman, what Lukeman has shared, you know, I've said to the boys on more than one occasion, our eldest often wears a hoodie and lifts it up over his head. And I said to him, absolutely not. You, if you're going to wear a hoodie, it needs to be off your head and on your shoulders. And the reason I do that, and the reason we say that is because of his skin color, because he's a biracial child. We, we, as parents worry about that. We consider when they go out, like my boys were saying, Oh, can we run down to the pizza shop, the local pizza shop? 
and get some food and bring it back. They were saying that to me today. And I said to them, yes, in the daytime. And that makes me sad because I, we shouldn't, they should be able to do it at 7.30 in the evening or 8 o'clock at night, you know, still at a safe and reasonable hour. Uh, but I worry about my kids. I worry that something could happen or they could, um, someone could think poorly of them. They're from a family that, um, you know, is, you know, mom and dad are still together. Like, we love each other. They're in a safe home, you know, they, um, they're being raised, um, you know, to love Jesus. Like, but when a cop sees them or when someone of authority sees them, that's not always what's seen. And that breaks my heart. Like that's a horrible thing. And, you know, I've heard, I've listened to, you know, different podcasts and people share things and I've heard people that are Caucasian, that are white, say, well, I don't see it. They've been, you know, I don't, I don't understand what people, like what I just shared, are talking about. Like, they, you know, they just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get it together, and you can have the same opportunities as everyone else. And that's not the case. That's not the truth. Now, you know, does Milton, places like Milton Hershey level the playing field? Absolutely. Um, am I thankful that I got that opportunity? Absolutely. 100%. Uh, so I think, you know, Lukeman coming from the rough neighborhood he came from, you know, and me growing up the way I did, you know, it was such hardship, you know, can we do better? Absolutely. We can definitely do better. We can make better choices for our families or, um, you know, hopefully, you know, the Lord would give us the opportunity to redeem some of what we've dealt with. But are those realities of, you know, our kids and us being looked at differently? Are we treated differently? We absolutely are. And it's, it's, it's hard, um, as a Latina to see it, you know, to be followed around a store because someone's thinking I'm going to steal something, especially when it's like a high-end store. You know, I mean, we're from New York City. I've been to Fifth Avenue. We go to the fancy places and people look at us like, oh, can you honestly afford to be here? You know, and it's, that's hard. Like that's a, that's a horrible thing to feel and to feel people watching you. I remember in college and I'll just share with this is one story, but I remember in college, it was, it was late, you know, 1030 at night, maybe 11. Um, and that's normal to be out now. It's not, we're in bed and (laughs) pajamas on, you know, it's, that's really late, but you know, in college it's normal. You're out. I was walking with my friends and I remember and we were all, we were all minorities. Um, so Latinos and we were all, you know, black and Latinos, we were walking. Um, and I think we were going to get something to eat. We had studied like that day, we had exams or something. And co- there was a co- two cops that saw us and pulled us all over and said, let's like, with the car pulled us over. We were on foot and they were in car I pulled us over and said, um, we want to see all your IDs. And we're like, what did we do? we're just in the street walking. Like it, there's not a curfew. We're grown, right? Like we're over 18, you know, why are you doing this? Um, and we all abided, we, we, we weren't going to try to fight with the cops, you know, cause that's just going to make it worse. Right. Uh, but how far do you go? And I love that Lukeman pointed that out. Like, so then someone drops, you know, nothing happened. We showed our IDs and 
we were sent on our way. They were, we were fine because we showed our school IDs. They're like, oh, okay, you guys are college kids here on campus. Yes, we are. Um, so we were sent on our way. But how, what do we do? What if something, what if one of my friends or myself, you know, would have gotten pushed or kicked or like, I, I don't, I'm not saying I'm going to think the worst of the cops, but why were we stopped? We were following the law. We weren't, you know, making loud noises. We were just walking. Like, that's, it's so hard. So I think to say all this, my heart would be that people would be willing to listen just and have a conversation. And like Lukeman said, like, if you're in relationship with someone that, um, you know, is of another race or a different color, go ahead, ask them questions. They're open to sharing. We're always open to sharing. We don't get a lot of questions, you know, before all this occur, I I should say all this, before the unrest, the social unrest and all that's happened in our country, we didn't get, you know, a lot of questions from people that weren't of our own, you know, races. Uh, We're getting them now. And I think just, just be willing to, you know, hear, hear people out, you know, so I guess to, to wrap this up before the the, the next panel discussion, um, so I, just to leave you with that, um, I don't believe Carolina doesn't believe that that police officers are bad. I think the percentage is is very low. Just like you know, I'm a banker, and so we have bad bankers, um, and so the 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 issue is not so much that, at least in our eyes, I, mean, I know for some people, they have this deep-rooted belief that, that you know, every police officer is bad. Every white person is bad. And uh, I remember making a comment, I think, to Carolina the other day, because I heard somebody on the radio say that all white people are racist. And I thought to myself, you must not know one single white person to make that type of comment. Because, I mean, you must really live in, like, a homogenized area where you have no exposure to anybody else. And, and so I don't know if that's true or I, I mean, I don't know what caused that particular comment to come out of the person. Um, it seemed very emotional, but there is a reality that in the back of your head uh, as a black man, as you know, in the back of my head, I have to, to deal with that. I have, so you know, if, if I get pulled, pulled over, I have to think about those things. I, I, it's, so there is that discomfort of who am I dealing with? Is this the one in 10,000 that I'm dealing with? Or is this the 9,999 that I'm dealing with? Which, which one am I getting today? And that is a very uncomfortable way to live life. That is, that is not a, a way that produces a feeling of security. Um, and as others are saying, these I think what you're hearing is this, the, the expression of not being hurt. And um, so I think that's just like that last comment that I wanna, want to, to leave you with before we get the other panel folks back up here. Thank you, Harvey's. Thank you so much. Um, also want to say thank you to everyone who has submitted questions via text. Um, I appreciate that. Let's continue. If you do have anything that comes to mind, feel free to text. Um, and uh, we'll t- keep the conversation going as best we can. There's a lot of texts here, actually, um, that we'll t- try our best to, to answer. But I um, wanted to start this next panel uh, quickly with uh, this question. Um, what is the relationship between racism... Hey, hey Matt, sorry, should we introduce? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. New, new guy. <laughs> 
So, uh, Louis, if you wouldn't mind actually introducing yourself and, and your position, if you don't mind. Certainly. Uh, my name is Louis Swigert. I've been attending the church roughly about two years uh, with our family. We usually sit in the far back. Uh, part of the reason for that is I'm in law enforcement. I've been in uh, police work for over 20 years, so I have a, a good deal of experience from different positions. Uh, I've worked for a couple different departments and have uh, some unique perspectives on how law enforcement is acting in, uh, and reacting in today's environment. Thank you very much. And um, So we'll get to this question here, and uh, we'll do our best to wrap up here uh, somewhat briefly. Um, what is the relationship between racism and police brutality? In what ways do the echoes of racism affect the relationship between police officers and black Americans? This is a long two-part question. Let me know if you need me to read that again. But What, what time did you want us to get done? <laughs> For those who didn't hear, Ben said, what time are we getting done here again? Um, so, yeah, we'll do our best, like I said, to be uh, somewhat brief. But uh, the question is, what is the relationship between racism and police brutality? In what ways do the echoes of racism affect the relationship between police officers and black Americans? So whoever wants to take that quickly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So... I don't, it's very hard to know whether something, whether an interaction between a, you know, I don't know what, what the term is, but a perpetrator and, and a police officer is driven by a, a, a racist intent. That, that's very difficult to, to determine. I mean, unless the police officer actually admits to it or says something in the process, um, so I, I think that narrative is, is not very healthy because uh, I, you could just have somebody who's being a jerk as opposed to a racist, that, that it wouldn't matter who they had interacted with. And, and so I, I think that, that that particular narrative is not very healthy to get to the core of what might be happening in some of these areas. I mean, you know, we, we know that there are just bad people everywhere. We know that there are bad people doing all types of jobs. Um, and to apply a racist, racist motive, it, I think it's not healthy right now. It, it's distracting, actually. Anyone else? Can you ask the question again? Just so, so sure yeah, the question is, what is the relationship between racism and police brutality? In what ways do the echoes of racism affect the relationship between police officers and black Americans? I think you have to start by acknowledging the history of what has gone on in this country. There have been some very racist uh, police departments, very biased uh, in, in the past generations, as well as there are in some departments across the country, some real negative influences in, in that way. I think in, in the modern day, you have uh, far more inclusive police departments than you ever had. A lot more uh, racial sensitivity uh, Training, I th I think what it comes down to really is about uh, communication and respect. Uh, I'm going to use a what's kind of a buzzword in law enforcement is community-oriented policing. As a police officer, you are charged to serve that community, which may be protecting, it may be uh, hanging out with kids, you know, playing the fun stuff, and of course, there's the negative aspect. Uh, the enforcement aspect. 
Uh, I don't think there's a person who's been pulled over by the police with those lights behind them that doesn't have a shot of adrenaline hit as soon as they see those lights, My, you know, myself included. You first see, you see that, you, you have a natural reaction, uh-oh, what's going on? What did I do? I didn't do anything. Uh, so every person has that. And if you come from an experience like Loopman, where you have a real first-hand witness of really bad police work, it's going to make you think things in a direction that maybe another person might not think. So I think uh, racism certainly, and, and, and brutality, police brutality, do go hand in hand. I think sometimes uh, something that might just simply be police brutality the first thing is to say it's racism. Well, it may not be racism. It may be a police officer who uh, just dealt with a domestic dispute is filled with anger and adrenaline, and now they're pulling you over on a traffic stop and things go sideways. Uh, so there's, I think it's a, it's a real conversation that there's, there's, it's a bigger issue. It's a systemic issue from the past. There's influences of today, and then there's also our own interpretations of what particular event we're dealing with. Thank you. Did anyone else want to speak to that? Okay. I'd like to get to some of these questions because we have a lot of them. Um, and I want to, like I said, trying to end at a good time. Um, let, uh, there's a general question basically that says, I pray for the race situation, but I don't know what to do. So what suggestions would you have for somebody who just has no idea how to even interact with this situation, maybe even interact with a non-white person? <laughs> that's all you tell. <laughs> that's, that <laughs> smile means something. Uh, I, just back to the earlier question of, uh, you know, it, for a white person who feels like they're afraid of saying the wrong thing, they're afraid of asking the wrong question, uh, why should you try and engage someone anyway? Um, and I would say as a Christian, like that, you know, there's the answer. Like, like this sort of how uncomfortable are we supposed to be to get close to each other? There's the answer. You know, like uh, hopefully that's never a cliche um, that, that we're actually willing to be uncomfortable to get close to each other. Um, I think, you know, I, I do think that whoever asked this question is like, again, I don't want to jump on cliches, but like the main thing as Christians that we are primarily firsthand called to do is to pray. Like that's like, that sounds cliche, but I just, I think about the way that we've, a lot of people in our country and myself have responded and towards current events. And like, if my first reaction was humility and prayer, like what David said to be on my knees before the Lord, it would change the way that I interact so often. Um, and so I want to encourage that that's a great place to start. I also think um, just it, it's okay. Like, I, I think it's okay. I think we can get paralyzed by I need to do something, right? Which is a good impulse right away. But I think, you, you know, it's kind of like, I, I, I guess, part like it would kind of be like, all right, I, I, need to, I need to build an addition on my house. If I were to try to do that, though, right now, it would be a disaster. Uh, <laughs> my house would look terrible. Um, and I think part of, like, the first step really is just to, to, 
to, to really take a step into this conversation is to enter different waters than you're used to swimming in. I mean, it just, it really is. If you're somebody that's been, that's in a mono-ethnic context and you have been for your whole life, it's very difficult. Um, and so I think listening and doing your best to, to learn from embodied people, also from, there's a lot of great, like, pastors and Christian teachers that are not, like, of the same ethnicity as you, um, or not even more than that, that are in multi-ethnic contexts that could be a great place to start and learn. Um, and I, yeah, so I think that's a great, pl- a good place to start. And yeah, go ahead, Carolina. I was just going to say, um, I think when I hear that person ask that question, I think they're looking for something like, can I do something now? Um, yes. When you're at church, I mean, I know we're doing inside and outside, but when you're at church, there's people sitting in front of you and behind you, right? Talk to somebody you never met before. I know that's uncomfortable. I know that's hard, but they look different than you. Just talk to them. That's it. Just say hello. They'll say hello back and get to know each other. Ask simple questions and then build that relationship like Lukeman talked about so that you can be more engaging and ask deeper questions and get responses from them that are genuine. Just be willing to be open to talk to people that, you know, anybody don't look like you. Um, you know, don't live in the same neighborhood as you, uh, you know, a police officer, you know, whatever, whatever it is. I'll just contribute. Um, I think there's a temptation to assume on both sides, like to adopt stereotypes and say, well, you know, there's this color. They must like that music. They must eat that food. They must like that sport. And, you know, there's just like an assumption that comes with just when you see somebody that you assume. And a lot of people assume what ethnicity I am. I'm, I'm Hispanic. I look like I could be 10 other different things, but I, but I'm, I'm usually, I'm darker than the average Joe. So it's like they, people, people assume, you know, one thing or another, like my mother looks fairly Indian and she's Dominican and she'll go to the gas station and a guy walk to her, walk up to her and say, where have you been? Where have you been? You know, like I've, that's what we've experienced. We've experienced these types of, of assumptions on, on a daily basis. So it's like, um, I feel personally, I feel most accepted when somebody approaches me and I don't feel that assumption. And I, I feel uh, welcomed as a person, as a human being, and not as a, a caricature, so to speak, that's seen on television or in movies. Um, and, and I think that's, that's my personal opinion on how to best interact with somebody that's different from you. Um, so let's, if, it's, does anyone else have anything for that? Okay. Let me just quickly unlock the phone here. Sorry. Um, another question is, um, why are there, if, if Christ died for the church, why are there different churches? Why are there black churches, Korean churches, etc.? Why, why do we have different churches from different backgrounds? And, and I think that we'll just keep the question to that. Why, why are churches different when they shouldn't be? I think I'll answer the Korean one more than anything else. When you have immigrants come from another country and they're not English or whatever language they're going into isn't their native language, they have a congregation where they feel comfortable being able to speak. Uh, you know, I attended Westminster Seminary many years ago and a lot of the people I attended with were Korean. And uh, it was a good conversation to have at that time. 
there was a clear distinction between those who have grown up in the United States and those who are from Korea, and the community that was needed, the language barrier. And so at least for that, you'll see some originally, that was because they were able to talk with one another. Yeah, I, I think it just comes down to some cultural comforts that it, it, we all like to be with people who are, are like us. You know, we, you know, I, I make the joke that, you know, when, of knowing what I'm going to get when I go to a black barbecue, like knowing like there's going to be fried chicken there. I mean, you can't make fried chicken on a grill, but there's going to be fried chicken there. And like, so there's these, there's these comforts that you have with people of of your like group, so you know, I, I don't think that that's I don't you know as long as the gospel is being preached, I don't see an inherent problem with that. I, I I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. But we all have comfort levels. We all have preferences to the things that we like, and you know certainly people of the same culture are going to just come together and naturally gravitate towards one another. My wife asks me, why do you like rice and beans so much? Why, do you, why can you eat that every single day? And I just, that's basically my answer. It's just like, this is, my com- this is what I grew up doing. This is my culture. And uh, not that, that that's wrong of her to ask that. I mean, in fact, I feel you know, great that she would ask that of me. So, I mean, in, in a genuine way, not in a condescending way. I mean, she probably means it condescending, but <laughs> for being honest. <laughs> um, did you have something to say? Yeah, I'd like to just jump in real quick. And so... I also think the relationship between particularly the the black church and the white church in America, that's a lot less easy of an answer than cultural preference. The difference between the black and white church in America is because white people did not allow black people in their churches, primarily. That's how it started. And I think that's, that's the history we got to reckon with, right? Um, that that's the, the echoes of that are part of the reason why our church is still divided, so much divided today. It's not the only reason why, but I think that whenever that was the case, I mean, I just, you know, just a a prominent pastor, I was listening to a sermon by John Piper a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about his own experience growing up in South Carolina in the 60s, and how he remembers being in the church whenever they voted to to resegregate their church. In the 60s. Um, so I think there are real historical reasons why there's a divide, at least along that racial line in America as well. Um, maybe we'll take two more questions from the text here, uh, just to be sensitive to your schedule. Um, here's a question directly for Lukeman. Uh, did, <laughs> did your parents ever have to give you the talk? And for those who do, would not know, what is the talk? So, I mean, there's a couple of the talks. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. If, Maybe the uh, talk that applies to this conversation oh. and not the, uh, the other one. So not one. tomorrow's event. Okay. <laughs> um, so there, I can't say that. Oh, so the talk is, is just to talk about your interaction with police, with society. Um, and... I can't say that there was ever a point where my dad sat me down and said, here's the world. I, I think it was just this, 
this constant observation of, between conversations between my dad and my grandfather and my aunts um, and my uncles. And, and so as a child, you're just hearing these stories that are swirling around constantly. Um, and then as you get older, you actually start to witness some of these, these things happening. So, you know, as a child, you're insulated from a lot of things. You don't understand why things are being said, why they're being done. But then as you get older, you start to realize that these things are happening. Um, and so th there was never a point where my dad would say things, but you just lived in an environment where you witnessed things. And so you didn't need anybody to tell you what exactly was going on. Uh, also, you know, having, you know, growing up in New York and hanging out with black kids, and so, you know, there's six black kids. And so you realize, okay, wait a second. Why are, why are we being treated this way? Why are, why are the police circling the block constantly? You know, why is the, you know, we would be in front of a friend's house and then you see the, the, the window shade sort of pulled to the side as somebody's peeking out at you. And, and so you start to realize that, okay, the world is what, what it is. Um, so I can't say that there's ever like a talk but there's constant conversation that, that just takes place. And, and even now, you know, when I talk with my sisters and you know, we talk about experiences that we have, or you talk to my mother, and you just, you just have conversations. No? Okay. Um, this will be the last question. Um, I'm having a hard time understanding. This is the question. I'm having a hard time understanding how we can discuss racism when we don't have a working definition. Will you please give the prevailing cultural definitions of which we should be aware? And this is the question that was asked earlier. And if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'd like to contribute to that a little bit. Um, so my understanding, and I could be very wrong on this, is the definitions that are prevailing right now of racism uh, is that there's a difference between prejudice and racism, where prejudice is more of a personal uh, preference against an ethnicity and racism is more of a systemic issue that means, like, for instance, to say it more directly, a white person, uh, a predominantly white society that controls um, all the working elements of the uh, a, a network of a system um, where a minority exists within that system um, they are oppressed due to the fact that they are that minority. That's my, I think that's like a weird way to say that, but basically that's why you'll hear, you'll hear some people say um, that black people can't be racist because they're the minority. Uh, you'll hear people say that sometimes. And that's my understanding of it. I mean, maybe one of you knows more on that subject than I do, but that's my, what my working understanding of it is. Does anyone want to speak to that or add to that? Yeah, th that... that appears to that, that that's a that's a simplified version of it um and i think that's a good way to 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 present it but again to answer that question is that there isn't a consensus as to what what that word means and so so i understand that that someone is looking for an answer but that that is i think part of the problem that we're faced is that there's not one definition that we're all using and so when we're having conversations with people it makes it very difficult to actually communicate with one another. So I, I, I think that person actually really hit the nail on the head and why this is so difficult is because we are all using different definitions um, and they're, they're changing. Like they're constantly changing every day. You know, you know, they're adding words, taking out words.
Yeah, I think just to go back to our, from the last panel where we talked about definitions of, of racism, um, you know, I would be interested to, to hear you all talk about, you know, I guess what, what, if we were to define, so Matt just gave what we understand is like a, a cultural understanding of, of racism uh, that's being used today and how that's, that's why we talk past one another so often is when one person means racism, they mean what another person means by prejudice. And when one person says racism, the other person's like, well, that's not racism because racism is just person to person prejudice. Um, so how would, how, how would you all define racism then? So that's, if that's how at least it is broadly talked about, can we move towards a definition of racism together as a panel on the fly? <laughs> or how would you respond to that statement? I, I would say it's, it's a failure to acknowledge another person's uh, humanity because of their skin color. Um, the fact that they're made in the image of God is diminished um, simply because you think they're the wrong color. And I would say that can, that can transpire across any race. Um, changing what you call it doesn't make it any less evil. I don't care if you call it prejudice or racism or whatever. It's a foul thing to do. So, Tony, can I ask you a follow-up question? <laughs> I'm just trying to get at this for him. So, um, okay, so if that's, if that's your... Could that take place, that definition that you gave of racism, which I 100% agree with, could that take place in both individual and corporate terms? Like, is there, is there a sense in which person to person, I can devalue you as the image of God? I think we would all agree that clearly we can. Is there a way in which a, the way that a society is set up by sinful people can also do that? I would think so. Yeah. 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 So, I, so your definition then, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's, it's clear, but it's also nuanced in the sense that it can speak in more broad ways as opposed yeah. to... Yeah. I, I think there's... there's I, I sense there's a lot of consensus on that idea to the extent that it affects things, I think is where there's a lot of disagreement. Yeah. Um, You know, just how much certain disparities are caused by a systemic problem versus cultural issues, and that seems to be where debates start. Mm -hmm. I think we will see. Sorry. I'd like to ask a question, kind of rhetorical, and give my own answer. So how do we get past it? I'm sure there's more that's going to become the next night, but how do we get past that? And I think looking at everybody as being made in the image of God, treating everyone as Christ, regardless of what their background, their their race. I, I hate to use the word class because I never like that. If, if Whether they have a lot of income or very little, treat everyone as though they are made in the image of Christ, I think is the answer, especially as Christians. So to, to answer that question, my, my definition is um, a, a belief that there are distinctives that makes one group superior to another group. And, and so I think the key is that, is that there's a belief in that, that and that's what 
I mean, that, that's your worldview at that point. That's what um, what drives how you think. How you, just like you know, a, a Christian worldview should drive everything that you do in your life. I mean, if you have a postmodern worldview, that's going to drive everything that you do in your life. And so I think it's that belief that um, in those dis- distinctives that turns it into racism, which then can turn into a corporate issue. Okay. I didn't know if you wanted to add anything to that. Um, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts that I'll, I'll keep most to myself, but I mean, so some, I guess something to share as far as the, the uh, minority experience that, that's always been, I kind of like, like kind of weighed on my heart just growing up in a, in a more predominant uh, Caucasian um, society. I, I, I was born in New Jersey and I moved to Lebanon, Pennsylvania, where there's a big Hispanic population, but in, I was in the Cornwall area, which is more of a Caucasian area. And uh, so I went to white schools and, and, you know, I was really the, the darkest person uh, within the 10-mile radius most of the time. Um, and I say that without exaggeration. So it's like growing up, I always had um, a personal anxiety and a pressure that black is bad or dark is bad. White is good. You know, chess, the white pieces go first. The black one goes, you know, second. And in pool, the white ball hits all the other colored balls. And, you know, it's like there is a, like a, a overhanging anxiety it's like wait a minute the the bad guys in the movies are always dark looking and evil you know like the the color itself is almost has like a representation of evilness whereas the you know the angels are white and jesus is white and all these other things and, and so that's the type of anxiety i grew up with and i i I'm, it's there and i'm not sure if a lot of caucasian people understand that anxiety um because it's that's and, and I want to use the word system, but that's, I don't want to use that word, but it's almost like it's there. There's something that's there uh, just hanging over your head. And we, as we talked earlier, it's like sometimes you'll walk into a room being a different color and you almost feel eyes on you because you're different. Um, and, and, and like, I don't know how else to explain it without, you know, making things worse. Because I know there's a temptation to say, well, you know, Black people, you do, do we? I don't. Do I, do I need to have pity on black people? Do I? I mean, what's? Why don't they fix their own neighborhoods? Why don't they fix their own things? And and what's wrong? You know, why are they telling me to do something about it? Um, when I, it goes much deeper than that, is really all I want to say to that. Um, and I, just going back to earlier, as we were saying, well, what can we do about the situation? I think the best thing we can do is, you know, love and be empathetic and understand that when somebody is completely different than everyone else that's in the room, there's a different experience. There's a different um, lifestyle uh, that, that's present there. So the best thing you can do is just kind of co- go into that relationship with, un- with that understanding. Um, I don't even know if that answers the question, but I just felt like that's something that was on my heart to share as far as my own experience. Um, so, you know, whether it's not, whether it's systemic, whether it's this or that, um, you know, it, it it does get pretty dicey, but um, yeah, yeah. There's there's that is all I wanted to say. And, and I think I hear at least a similar as we put together the pieces of this a similar tune that it, it's not it's not as simple as one or the other, yeah. right? That that it is nuanced um, because I think we're we're deceitful as sinners, and that's the way that sin works itself into society. So, like Matt, I I don't hear you saying. That, that the people in your town, because you felt that way, were racist. Right. 
right? But what I hear you saying is that the, the empirically undeniable racism of the past that has shaped our society leads to that situation where you are in a school and you're the only person in town that's, that's of a darker skin color and you feel all these ways. And that's real sin, real racism in the past that has some effect on that. And that's the nuance of all of this, I think, is that it's just not a clear cut. One's, one's the right answer, one's the wrong answer, which is why when you chop each other into different news stations and different teams and hurl insults back and forth at one another, it's not helpful. Um, but thank you for sharing that. I think that was a helpful way to kind of bring this to a conclusion is to recognize that. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to invite Pastor Benjamin up to close us in prayer, and uh, we'll see where he leads you from here. Um, thank you for coming. Thank you for being up here and risking. Just 60 seconds in a short prayer. Um, I, many of you know I live two minutes that way, and uh, many of my kids have attended a school that's five minutes that way. And I remember looking at my daughter's school pictures, and there's 30 kids, and 21 of them aren't white. And so my daughter's going to a school where she's a minority, um, I guess in that sense. And then she comes to the church that's five minutes this way, and to use the same number of 30, there's 27 white people, just proportionally. I'm making this up. Um, And... Five, six years ago, we're at a staff Christmas party at my house. I know Scott Elder was there. I'm not sure who else was in there. And we're finishing the sentence. My hope and prayer for our church is, and one of my hopes and prayers was that we would be less white in 2015. (laughs) And now we're in 2020. And I don't know how far we've gotten, um, but we have a ways to go. So the question was asked earlier, why are you wanting to do this? That's, I'm so thankful (laughs) that in some ways, I hope this is an outworking of prayers that I've long forgotten, and many of us have long forgotten, but perhaps the Lord's is still answering. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight, the opportunity to gather and think and learn and be challenged. My mind goes to the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians that um, knowing your height and depth and breadth of your love for all of us in Christ, that you would do more than we could ask or imagine. And I I would love to see more than we could ask or imagine happen here in our own community and in this world under the banner of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Thank you for coming and staying late.